You know, uh, good parents, educators, teachers, other leaders take advantage of something called teachable moments. You've heard that phrase, oh, that's a teachable moment. And often, the things that you learned in a, quote, teachable moment are things that stuck with you and brought about life change. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 6, I'm going to show you Jesus using a teachable moment with his followers. There's a Bible app event for this message. If you'd like to follow along that way, you're welcome to do so. Just in case you're not real sure what exactly is a teachable moment, um, it's that time when an event or a series or a group of events uh, presents you with an opportunity um, to notice something and draw a conclusion something and a life lesson from something regarding a particular aspect of life. My son Tim is here this morning. He will tell you that when we were watching TV together, if it was pre-recorded on a VHS tape, he wanted to take the remote from me. Do you remember this, Tim? Because I was constantly pausing and saying, see what he did there? See, he shouldn't have done that. Let's talk about this. And I was pulling teachable moments from everything. I got to tell you, I don't even know if it's still on television, but that show Survivor, that had so many negative examples of how to live your life. We never could get through an hour episode in less than three nights. It was just because dad was always pausing, uh, especially for Esther and saying, did you see what that person did there? Was that wise? What would you have done? How could you get out of this? What, what kind of decision do you think you should make regarding that if you're ever in those shoes? And the line that they would say is, would you give me the remote? We just want to watch the show. We just want to watch the show. Jesus used teachable moments, not from television, but from everyday life. You can probably think of a few examples of your own. He happened to notice a poor woman who was giving her money, her offering at the temple. And uh, Jesus looked at that and thought, huh, This is a teachable moment for my disciples. And so he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave gifts out of their wealth. She gave out of her poverty and put in all she had. And the teachable moment was showing that giving is not just a matter of the amount you give. In fact, giving is not even measured in terms of amount. It's measured in terms of sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice you're making? This is a teachable moment when that woman walked up to do that and Jesus happened to be standing there with his followers. He loved teachable moments. There was another time Jesus happened to be in a a home of a very religious, pious, um, self-righteous kind of man. And, and this woman comes in and she breaks this perfume over his head and she, she takes her tears and wipes them on her, his feet and with her hair, she's drying them and, and Jesus says, aha! teachable moment. I think most of us would have been like, this is just so uncomfortable. But Jesus is always looking to teach. And he he says, do you see this woman? Uh, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet to wash them. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And it was a life lesson. Jesus just took that woman and what she was doing and said, look at this. This is what love, this is what love really looks like. And the passage we're going to read today is the feeding of the 5,000. And as we look at it, Jesus is going to use these circumstances as teachable moments. He's going to give life lessons from these. And I'm going to give you five life lessons that I'd like to just share with you from the feeding of the 5K here uh, this morning. They all come from John chapter 6. So if your Bible's open, we're not going to read a text in advance. 
We're going to read it through as we go, so you want to keep your Bible open. The first lesson that I see that Jesus gives here is that being a, fo- a follower of Jesus means being compassionate. Being a Christ follower means having a heart of compassion. And it seems silly that I would have to say that, but have you seen Christ followers who are not compassionate? Have you seen people who say, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, and they're militant, or they're demanding and exacting regarding your behavior, or they're unyielding, or they're just downright obnoxious? Am I the only one that's bumped into these people? Sometimes I've been one of these people, but that's not what being a Christ follower is about. That is not how Jesus was, least of all in this passage. In fact, if you think about it, the only time you can really see Jesus being discompassionate, and I haven't thought about this in a lot of detail, so there may be another exception, but the exception that I see is when he's dealing with religious bullies, you know, people who are just bullying people around because of their religious behavior. Jesus tends to be a little less compassionate with them. But he always modeled compassion with people in need. He always showed that in the way he lived. I mean, look at the first verse and follow along as I read it. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Why are they following Jesus? Because he showed compassion. How did he show compassion? Well, when someone asked for help, he gave it to them. He healed the sick. Now, he, the, so does the word signs, that this is a sign. And, you know, a sign always points to something, so to speak, in this case. And, and what the sign was saying was, I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of God. But Jesus could have proved that without healing people. I mean, his signs were not magic tricks. He wasn't pulling a rabbit from a hat. He wasn't sawing his assistant in half. His signs corresponded with his nature. They were compassionate signs. They were signs of of love. He was healing sick people. But it wasn't just that when someone came to him and said, I have a need, would you help me? that Jesus helped someone. Jesus helped people even when they didn't come and say, help me. He met needs that that he simply observed. This miracle, feeding the 5,000, it's the only one of Jesus' miracles that appears in all four of the biographies, biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have it. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that the disciples said to Jesus, hey, it's getting late. You ought to send these people away so they can get something to eat. Send them home. They got a need? Send them home. That was kind of their thinking here. But John shows us Jesus has a plan, a compassionate plan, to take care of the need. Let's pick up where we left off. Let's look at verse 3. It says, Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He only asked him this to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So here these people are coming. I mean, the picture that I get is they're not even with him yet. So the question of are they hungry yet probably hasn't occurred to anyone else. But Jesus, thinking ahead, thinking about what their needs will be like, he, he, he says to Philip, these people are going to be hungry. <laughs> Where are we going to get the food to feed them? Being a Christ follower means being compassionate. It means when someone has a need that they bring to you, you see what you can do to help them. It means even when they don't bring a need, you look at what you can do. How can I be like Jesus 
and helping this person, even though they didn't even ask. Let me give you the second life lesson here. Being a Christ follower means engaging with others. It means interacting with others. It means serving with others. Now, you don't have to be an efficiency expert. I remember when I worked at the brick plant in Somerville, they brought in all these efficiency experts to make the plant more efficient. Jesus didn't need an efficiency expert, um, evidently. You don't have to be an efficiency expert to know that there was a, a better way, a more efficient way to take care of this thing if you're Jesus. I mean, Jesus said this, let there be light, and there was light. So he could have said, let there be loaves and fishes, and there would have been loaves and fishes. He could have said, let there be a full meal in front of each one of these people, and there would have been a full meal in front of each one of these people. He could have said, let these people be full, and they would have even had to eat. He could have done that. He's Jesus. He has that ability to do it. But he sees, this is something I can do with my disciples. This is something that I can engage in with them. This is kind of a a teachable moment that they can work together here to see the kingdom of God in a way they haven't before. I have this thing I say, and I think there are some guys in church are just sick of hearing me say it. Here it is. Never do a ministry alone that you can do with a friend. Do you hear that sentence? Never do a ministry alone that you can do with someone else. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He could have done this all by himself, but he engaged others. He engages Philip. I mean, look again, or look at verse 5. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw that great crowd coming toward him, he turned to Philip and said, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. He already had in mind what he was going to do. Some suggest that Jesus is asking Philip that question because maybe Philip came from that region and he would know where the nearest Walmart was. Maybe so. But the reason that Jesus is doing this at all is because he wants to engage others with Philip. I love Philip's response. Philip answers in verse 7, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now, Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that, but he's drawing Philip into what he is about. Philip, this is what I am about, is caring for people and showing them this compassion. He's drawing Philip into ministry. And listen, he engages Philip in the ministry, even though he could do it better himself, because the ministry is about people and Philip is a people. And so he, he wants to engage Philip in this. He engages Andrew. Look at verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? That's the weirdest part of the story. I mean, think about it. There's 5,000 people here. That's just the guys. There's women with them. There's children with them as well. What are you doing, Andrew? Just talking to hear your head roar? I mean, really? It would be like if you and I were talking about world hunger and we're just talking about, you know, we looked at some statistics and this many people die without food every day. And this many people, even in the United States of America, this many kids go to bed hungry every day. What are we going to do about it? And I say, well, fat chicks have some chickens. (laughs) 
what are you doing, Shields? That's just such a dumb thing to say, right? How do five small loaves and two fish make any sense in the face of 5,000 hungry men plus women and children? And the only reason I can think to myself, there may be others, but the only reason I can put together of why, why Andrew would say such a thing as this is because Jesus maybe was pressing the issue. So what are we going to do? Hey, I'm asking you, what are we going to do? How are we going to feed these people? Where are we going to get feed? Where are we going to get food to feed them? Because when someone presses the issue like that, and a question is asked enough, someone's going to come up with a crazy idea. Well, there's five loaves and two fish in this little boy's lunch. What do you think about that? But as crazy as that seemed, it turned out not to be quite as crazy, right? But what Jesus is doing there is he's engaging Andrew. He engaged Philip. He engaged Andrew. He even engaged a little boy. What kind of a teacher steals a little boy's lunch? (laughs) He didn't steal it. He blessed it. He multiplied it. Look at verse 10. It says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Can you imagine being this little boy? I don't know if he was reluctant to give his lunch or not. But I guarantee you, he was not reluctant to tell the story afterward. Somebody said, where's his mom? I don't know. Where's his dad? I don't know. Back in those days, kids had a little more room to run, maybe, right? Can you imagine going back home and telling your dad and mom what happened? You know what? You remember what you gave me for lunch? You told me to share. I did. (laughs) You're not going to believe what happened. And then can you imagine, like, as he grew into adulthood, telling his friends that story? Can you imagine when he got married and told his wife, do you remember when we were kids, that guy named Jesus? Do you remember that? Did I ever tell you about what he did with my lunch? You've told me a hundred times, honey. Can I tell you one more time? It's such a great story. Can you imagine telling his, his kids and his grandkids? You know, it might have been a stretch for him to give up, give up his own lunch, but I am sure he rejoices that Jesus engaged him and involved him in what he was doing. Even in heaven, when he thinks back to it, he's probably like, oh, I'm so glad Jesus engaged me. Being a Christ follower means engaging with others. There's very few lone rangers. Strangely enough, and maybe not strangely enough, I I do see Jesus shows us that being a Christ follower means having confidence. That might sound strange, but it's confidence in God and who he's made you and what he's called you to. I I love what, what happens in verse 11. It says, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. So Jesus gives thanks twice. He gives thanks for loaves and then he did the same with the fish. Before any miracle had happened, before there was enough food sitting there for everyone to eat, Jesus gave thanks. And you know, some might look at Jesus and they might say, Jesus had so much faith. And I feel like that's kind of silly because I'm having trouble imagining God needing to have faith. You understand? What, what I like to see in, in, in my mind is Jesus just had confidence. He didn't just believe this would happen. He knew it was going to happen because he was going to do it. Confidence. <laughs> he had confidence that the loaves, the fishes, were going to be multiplied. The opposite of confidence, of course, is fear and timidity, things with which Jesus was at least, he never yielded to it, even if he was acquainted with it. The kind of confidence that belonged to Jesus was confidence that he wants us to have this kind of confidence in knowing who he is. And he wants us to have confidence in knowing who we are in Christ. Jesus knew 
He's the son of God. And in case anyone else wasn't sure of that, right in Matthew 3.17, the voice from heaven says, behold, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. If Jesus hadn't known who he was, and how ridiculous a sentence is that, if Jesus hadn't known who he was, we wouldn't know either because he would have been a nobody, so to speak. Humankind would have been without hope had Jesus not known who he was. But he knew who he was. He was confident in who he was, and that changed everything. His identity changed everything. Your identity as a Christ follower is kind of what your Christian faith will either thrive on or struggle with. And when you begin to understand your identity, who you are in Christ, from a biblical perspective, it changes everything. Because at first, it humbles you like, wow, Jesus did this for me. And second, it gives you confidence because Jesus did that for you. And it changes how you interact in the world. It gives you that humble confidence in yourself because of your confidence in Christ. And you realize, I'm blessed. He saved me. I've been reconciled. I don't have to be afraid of God. He hears me. He gave me gifts. He gave me a spiritual gift, at least one. He made me new. He forgave me. He's adopted me as his child. He loves me. And he gives me victory. So if I feel like I'm unimportant, or if I feel like I'm never going to be able to make a difference, or if I am tempted to believe my life just doesn't have any meaning at all, stop it. (laughs) Because all of those are lies from the enemy. Because if you have turned to Christ and trusted him as your savior, then... You should have full confidence in who you are in Christ, a humble confidence in who you are. And Jesus wants you to have that. Confidence in who you are and confidence in what you're to do. There are certain things in this world that God has for you to do. And you are just the right person to do them. Jesus knew what he was here to do. The son of man, he says, came to seek and save what was lost. He did what he came to do. I know what I'm here to do. (laughs) I can tell you one of the things I'm not here to do, cook dinner. Can't do it. If you've eaten my food, you would say amen. I know something I am here to do, wash dishes. I'm not bad at that. I do okay at that. I know something else I'm not here to do is carpentry work. I just get so mad. It's not my thing. Ask anyone who's seen my attempts. But I know something I am here to do. Encourage my bride. Tell her it's going to be okay. Listen to her when she's struggling. Give her my attention as I put down the cell phone. That's something God has called me to do. It's one of those things in this world that God has for me to do, and I'm just the right person to do it. Something else that I know I'm here to do is when I'm talking to someone in their walk with God, they're struggling, I'm here to encourage them and help them. Maybe help them get back on the right path. I'm here to help a family when they're dealing with loss. To help them find hope in Christ. That's what God put me here to do. There are certain things in this world that God has for you to do. And when you realize you're just the right person to do them, (laughs) then you have, as a Christ follower, then you have confidence in God. Jesus modeled that by giving thanks before he even did the miracle.
It was a life lesson. The fourth life lesson has to do with stewardship, that being a Christ follower means stewardship. You know what a steward is, right? A steward is someone who's been given the job of taking care of that which belongs to someone else. Maybe the servers at a restaurant could be thought of as stewards. They're making sure that everything in a restaurant is working, you get the food, that sort of thing. Laurel and I are a steward of a piece of property that belongs to Kerwinsville Alliance Church. The parsonage we live in does not belong to us, it belongs to you. We treat that with respect because we respect you. You know, the living room, dining room carpeting in that is the original carpeting that was in that. I think the year would have been 1994. No, it'd be before that. That carpet looks beautiful. Do you know why? Because I beat my children every time they walked on it in their shoes. (laughs) Not true. Didn't beat them. But we treated that with respect because we knew it didn't belong to us and we were caring for it for someone else. And plus, we love the carpet. We love the carpet to this day. Carpet guy came in and changed some other carpet that hadn't held up as good. He said, oh, that's good carpet. You're never going to find carpet like that again. I said, Laurel, socks only, socks only, right? We're taking care of something, though, that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to you. You have given it to us to use so that the kingdom would be advanced and we use, it, we use it as conscientiously and as well as we can. Jesus has given all of us stuff to use conscientiously and well. He's given us time. He's given us resources. He says, use those for my honor and glory. You see it right in verse 12 when he, after everyone's had enough to eat, he says to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. And what I can't believe is that none of the gospels record one of the disciples, at least one of them's got to say, are you kidding me, Jesus? You can make this stuff appear right out of the, right out of thin air and you want us to pick it up and put it in baskets? What are you doing? I'm trying to teach you a lesson that the good things I give you are things that you should take care of and use for my honor and glory. So your time doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And your home doesn't belong to you. Even if you paid it off at the bank yourself, it belongs to God. Your automobile, your RV. Someone's letting us use an RV this week. Part of the reason why is because he says, that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to God. Your, your money, your talents, your abilities, they all belong to God. Brennan Bell, who leads worship very well at a church nearby here, Tri-County Church. Brennan Bell sat there one time, and I looked at him, and I said, Brennan, you have a gift of music. Do not waste it. Use it for the glory of God. He does every Sunday. I love that. He is stewarding his gift. Jesus is teaching that all these things that come from God are to be cared for and used for his honor and glory. So verse 13 says, they gathered up. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. It's a great life lesson, isn't it? I got one more. Don't get excited, though. There's 25 minutes left and I'm going to fill it. (laughs) Being a Christ follower means keeping the main thing the main thing. Did you ever hear that phrase? Keep the main thing the main thing. After Jesus does this, the people want to take him and make him king. It says that in verse 14. Take a look at it. After the people saw Jesus, I'm sorry, let me read that again. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. 
And indeed, that was true. Then in the next verse, look how Jesus responds. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, why? I mean, think about it. He's Jesus. In the end, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is establishing a kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, but I got a kingdom. And he's going to come as king, and he's going to rule, the book of Revelation tells us. So why not now? Why not do this now? This sounds like a good idea these people want to do. But here it is. Jesus would not be distracted from what he was needing to do at that time. He kept the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing was to go to the cross to pay for our sins. And he would not allow himself to be distracted from that mission. You know, the, the, the phrase that is used, and I believe it might come from Isaiah, I can't remember for sure, is he set his face like flint for Jerusalem. And, and that flint is very unyielding. It doesn't, it doesn't adjust. And so Jesus would not be distracted. He would let nothing distract him. If you are a Christ follower, (laughs) you know that distraction is the enemy's forte. He loves to distract us from doing what God calls us to do, from being who God calls us to to be. Can you think back till May? (laughs) This kind of funny, it's kind of a funny thing that pastors think. We think you remember sermons we preached months ago. (laughs) Back in May, we looked at Jesus. being tempted by Satan. Think about how Satan wanted to use distraction in, in that scenario. You know, the very first temptation, Jesus is alone in the desert because he wants to connect with the Father. He's fasting during this time. And at the end of this time, who comes along but Satan, the devil, and he tempts him. And the very first temptation is perfectly logical. Turn these stones into bread, you can do it. Turn these stones into bread so that you have something to eat. That's a distraction, Satan. I am here to commune with my Father. I will not be distracted. Because man will not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Father, I'm keeping the main thing the main thing. Think about the next temptation, round two. Jesus, I got an idea. You want people to know who you are. I mean, you came here so people know who you are. Why don't you go to the pinnacle of the temple and why don't you throw yourself down? There's this kind of obscure passage somewhere that says, yeah, that's how the Messiah will come. God's going to catch you. He'll give his angels charge concerning you. Do that. It's a distraction. I didn't come here to be taken as king. I came here to die on the cross. And he says to him, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Not going to do that. Jesus is staying on course, not allowing himself to be distracted. He's keeping the main thing, the main thing. And then the third one. You remember the third one? He says, hey, see all these kingdoms of the world? See them all? (laughs) Nobody has to die. Nobody has to die. If you just bow down to me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. They'll be yours. Listen to the language Jesus used. Away from me, Satan. You're trying to distract me from my mission? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus would not be distracted. He keeps the main thing, the main thing. And I think of all the five lessons we've talked about today, these five life lessons we've talked about today, teachable moments, this is one that applies to our age more than anything because we are among the most distracted people that I can imagine, right? Let me me tell you some things that distract me. 
By the way, you know when I do that, when I say, let me tell you about my problems, that it's just because they're real problems and they really are my problems and I know doggone well some of them are yours too. (laughs) So see if this uh, is a problem that you have as well. One of the things that distracts me is pleasure and pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure is not bad. At his right hands, our pleasure at his right hand, God's right hand, is pleasure evermore. So pleasure is not a bad thing unless it becomes a distraction. This week, our families all together, first time ever, those kids, those cousins can see each other. I love that. It is a unique pleasure as the patriarch of this family. (laughs) It is a unique pleasure for Laurel and me. But there are other things beyond my pleasure that call for my attention. Prayer needs. Hey, Pastor Steve, you got a minute? I got to talk to you about a prayer thing. I don't really have a minute. Watching my grandkids. Talk to you later. Who would do that? Who would allow themselves to be distracted that way? Hmm, I didn't. I didn't. Just in case you're thinking, did you do that, Pastor Steve? No. I've done worse things, but I didn't do that thing. Other things call for my attention. Lunch with someone who needs some guidance. Uh, Small group meetings. Writing this message. So I had this message pretty well written, but Friday I knew this message ain't ready to sail, man. It's going to crash and burn. And so I literally went to Mahaffey and sat in our cottage while my kids and my grandkids were at home and just sat there and wrote this message. Yeah, I would have loved to be home. But even though I find pleasure there, that would have been a distraction. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Pleasure. Here's another one. Politics. Politics can thoroughly distract me. I have a rule. When a men's group is together, you're not allowed to talk about politics. The other day, they were mad at the way I was cooking my hot dogs, so they started talking about politics just to punish me. So, yeah. The reason that rule is there is because it is so distracting. Now, understand this. I believe Christians must be aware of what's going around them politically, and I vote. You know, I vote often and early. Early and often. No, I only vote once, but I vote whenever I can, right? I believe we should vote. But I want, I want you to think about politics for a minute. I want, take a look at the list again. Being, bring, being compassionate, engaging with others, having confidence in God's stewardship, keeping the main thing the main thing. You know, if we think politics will demonstrate any of those values, we have absolutely lost our way. Absolutely lost our way. Keep the main thing the main thing. Following Jesus. Here's the third distraction. <laughs> Busyness. Busyness. And I think part of our busyness is our affluence. Can I say that? I don't think there's anyone here that doesn't have food to eat. We're we're pretty affluent. And I think most of us here have automobiles that we can afford to put gas in. We could continue to afford to put gas in, even if it was twice the price. We're pretty affluent. And that affluence, I think it contributes to our busyness. Let me give you an example of this. Before we moved to Clearfield County, my wife and I were good friends with a couple who made really good money. Um, they were just ordinary people like you and me. Um, the, the, the man, the husband, he uh, was a pastor's son. And the woman, I think her dad grew up uh, as a postal worker. I mean, she grew up and her dad was a postal worker uh, at the time. And uh, we loved them. They were just really good friends of ours. We hung out with them a lot. I want to tell you, if you can hang out with people that make a lot of money, you eat well. I mean, swordfish on the grill. I mean, it was fun. We had a good time. And we loved them. They were just ordinary people who had worked really hard and made a good living. And they had lots of cool stuff. 
They had gadgets before gadgets were around, it seemed, right? Um, our kids loved swimming in their indoor pool all year round. It was just so neat. The wife, she had a lot of wisdom. Her name was Cindy. She had a lot of wisdom. And once, when attending Laurel's Bible study, she said something that through the years I paraphrased, and I probably don't have it anywhere near what she said, but the point is still the point. Now think about it. This is a person who grew up like you and I grew up and has come into a lot of money, right? And she said this. Growing up, we didn't... This is, this is not a quote. This is a paraphrase. Growing up, we didn't have much, but now we do. And I have found that having things requires a lot from me. It brings distraction from what's really important. Hmm. Hmm. There is a busyness that comes with our lifestyle. Busyness in recreation. Just all kinds of busyness. Caring for things. Making sure it's okay. Being a good steward of all the stuff I have. Make sure I get my money's worth out of that whatever I bought. And that busyness can leave you physically exhausted, emotionally tired, and spiritually empty. But Jesus kept the main thing the main thing. And he tells me to keep the main thing the main thing. He kept his eyes on the cross, purchased our redemption. He did it as a life lesson, but he did it as our redemption. It's vital that you and I keep the main thing the main thing. Look at the screen again. Can you do that? Being compassionate toward people, engage with others, have confidence in God, be a good steward of what's been given you, keep the main thing the main thing. So I want you to think about this for a minute. If you had to pick one of those and say, I think I'm doing okay on that, which one would it be? Being compassionate, engaging with others, confidence in God and who he's making you and what he has for you to do, stewardship, keeping the main thing the main thing. And I want you to thank God that you're doing all right in that area. Or you're doing pretty good in that area. Because if you are doing well in that area, and there's areas there that you should feel like, yeah, I'm doing good there. That, that, that very reality comes from the fact that God has given you the ability to do well there. So give him thanks for that. And enjoy the fact that he's pleased there. And then think about it again. Look at it again. Which one of these could you use a little work in? Do you find it difficult to be compassionate toward people? You know how I feel about the humans. I just don't understand the humans, right? Are you engaging with others? Or do you find yourself wanting to distance yourself from others? Do you have confidence in who God has for you to be and what God has for you to do? Or are you kind of like, yeah, I don't really know. Are you living in fear? Are you living out of your fears? Or are you living out of confidence in Christ? Are you being a good steward with what God has given you? Are you keeping the main thing the main thing? Or are you allowing yourself to be distracted? Which one of those could you use a little work on? And then don't let yourself get all hung up on it like, oh, I'm so bad at keeping the main thing the main thing. I allow things. Don't, don't do the whining thing because God doesn't want you to, to grovel. <laughs> he just wants you to come to him and say, Wow, oh, I really need help in this area. Spirit of God, show me where I need help and then give me the power and the ability to, to make the changes you have. A couple things about God. Number one, he never tells you something's wrong, but if you don't know what it is, I'm not going to tell you. 
He never does that. You might have had friends that did that. Well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. God is not that friend, right? If something's wrong, you say, what is it? He'll tell you. And second, he never tells you something's wrong and good luck fixing it. He never does that, right? He says, something's wrong. Here's what it is. Come to me and I'll help you fix it. Because he loves you so deeply that whether you came to him with a need or whether he saw you walking across the desert up a hillside toward him and he knew you were going to be hungry later, he cares about you. He loves you. And he will meet your needs. I want to pray that we would give consideration to these life lessons and our lives would be transformed as we see these teachable moments that have unfolded here. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. And let's pray. Let's bow our hearts. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. We are so thankful for the way you, you care for us and the way you want us to change and to grow. We know you don't need us. <laughs> we know that you're perfectly capable of doing everything better than we could hope to do if we even helped you. But we are glad for your compassion and your wanting to engage us and that you have certain things for us to do and you make us the right person to do them. And you've given us talents and gifts and resources and that you help us avoid distraction and keep the main thing the main thing. I would pray, Father, that uh, if there are areas there where we could improve, that your goodness would draw us to those areas and that we would improve by the power of your spirit. We look for you to forgive us for occasions when we've been careless in that and we trust you to forgive us. We will walk, we will walk with you. We will walk after you. We will be Christ followers. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.